Hi, welcome to season six of Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Jews Without Money, which is Mike Gold's 1930 semi-autobiographical novel about growing up on the Lower East Side's Jewish immigrant community around the turn of the 20th century. But first, we are very happy to welcome our friend and comrade Benjamin Balthasar, our guest host for this episode. Benjamin is an associate professor of English at Indiana University, South Bend, where he teaches 19th and 20th century multi-ethnic U.S. literature. And I get to have someone who's in my immediate field on the show, which is so (laughs) dope. Um, His work and teaching focuses on the relationship among social movements, racial identity, and cultural production. Um, His book, Anti-Imperialist Modernism, Race, and Transnational Radical Culture from the Great Depression to the Cold War, was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2016. You can read his work in American Quarterly Criticism in these times, Jacobin and elsewhere, and he's also a poet. Um, His collection of poems, Dedication about Jewish Victims of the Blacklist, was published by Partisan Press in 2011. And his current project is on the U.S. Jewish left and cultures of anti-Zionism, and it's on contract with Verso. So, Benjamin, would you talk a little more about your work and why you want to pick Mike Gold and come on and talk about it with us? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, in some ways, I mean, I feel like, uh, by the way, thank you for having me on. Um, it's a delight to be here. Yeah, I think in some ways, uh, Mike Gold's 1930 Jews Without Money is at the center of thinking about all the questions that you kind of mentioned about my work in the introduction. It's a novel about the left. Uh, it's a novel about racial identity. It is a kind of central text in the proletarian literary movement. And I think also has a lot to do with the forgotten cultural sensibilities of the left as they've been uh, erased and buried by uh, the Red Scare and the Cold War and the way that shaped English departments and also literary sensibilities in this country. And so I think in some ways, I keep going back to Jews Without Money because even though, you know, for very obvious reasons, it's a delightful novel, it's funny, it's bold, it's, I think, actually avant-garde in a really important way. Um, and it's just a delight to read and to teach. Uh, but I keep going back to it because I think it, in some ways marks a whole path to literary modernism, to thinking about race and identity, to thinking about what the novel is supposed to be about that could have actually rewritten American literary history, uh, again, if McCarthy and his big red pencil hadn't undone it uh, from the late 1940s to the 1960s. So in some level, going back to it is like going back to this like, you know, still bleeding wound that, that yeah. needs to be healed and, and, and recovered. So yeah, so again, it, this book is, is you know, incredibly important, I think, both to me and to thinking about uh, American literature <clears throat> and what it is, what it could have been, where it's been, et cetera. Awesome. So why we wanted to read it. For me, we haven't read a book by a real radical in like 10 episodes. So the (laughs) last one was Caleb Williams. Um, So I think it was, you know, it's time again, we really need to wash the taste of uh, D.H. Lawrence out of our mouths. Yes, Um, forever. Don't say that. Yeah, I was gonna say that sounds almost a little too literal. I apologize. (laughs) Um, uh, I, I loved this book it hits a lot of points for me communism duh questions (laughs) of ethnicity and race and i put those in quotes of course urbanism and childhood and i'll probably harp on that last one to some degree that i i hope doesn't bore the rest of you in part because i think it's such a crucial 
element of literature and my interest in photography of the working class. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about persuasive literature. So Black Boy or Maggie Girl of the Streets or America's in the Heart. But the earlier stuff about the quote proletariat too, Dickens and 19th century stuff has a lot of child characters. Gold is so good at providing us a child character who elicits the sympathetic thing that kids are supposed to do. But also I super appreciate that he remembers that kids are shitheads and sometimes like <laughs> sad- truly sadistic little fucks. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can confirm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 It has interesting just stuff to think about uh, with respect to space, which I think is interesting. So like the sociality of the tenement, the danger and pleasure of the street to what degree a neighborhood is like bounded and what those boundaries might mean, the presence and absence of Eastern Europe. And yeah, we're just hugely grateful, Benjamin, to have you on because it's important that books like this, I think, be talked about among leftists, like to 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 yeah. remind us all of like taking a book quite seriously on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, um, that's a really great point. But I think there's two things that are really important. First of all, is the the role is there's a whole kind of genre of children in 1930s proletarian novels, and it's because basically the third 1930s was the first youth movement, really yeah. in America. Um, right. And and so youth culture was like really like the beginnings of youth culture really are in the 1930s in all kinds of ways, everything from like pop culture to the commun- you know young communist league to hopping freight trains. But also, too, he's like shitting on the romantic tradition of the child, which I just love. Totally. You know? and, and so that's the other part of this that I, I just think is amazing. It's like, yes, yeah, so I'm going to give you the, the Wordsworthian child and I'm going to make him into a little like gangster, you know? Yeah. And, and I just yeah. think that's awesome. So I yeah. was telling, I don't know, Katie, interesting if you've read Black Boy, but I was like, don't read it if you're upset by the way cats are treated in this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. just, you know, among some of that proletarian literature, animals are not given the sort of reverent yeah. treatment as pets that we're accustomed to. Proletary literature, like if, it, if there's one unifying sort of stylistic theme, it's against sentimentality. And so yeah. I think I yeah. think there has to be therefore a tortured cat yeah. in like every <laughs> proletarian novel, you know, so just in case, yeah. you, you know, your your heartstrings were, were going to... <laughs> You know, you played. Uh, here's your tortured cat Well, and the yeah, and and the yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you guys, a hundred percent that um, the the child is such a sentimentalized figure, and, th- and that's what all kinds of well, yeah. I mean, the 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 lib Dickensian tradition. I mean, it's lo- like the child is like the the victim of poverty, but in this really, which is yeah, I mean, that's a hundred percent what Gold does as well. Except like it's not in the Dickensian or God forbid, like Horatio Alger, like highly like individual intention kind of you know, like oh, just meet a good millionaire or whatever right you know so anyway but also yeah that that, that, that it's just, you know they're not purely just the kind of victim of like bad actors around them they're also you know mm-hmm. kind of characters in their in, in in their own right in really interesting ways yeah and um i was i was so happy when benjamin uh agreed to do the show because I'm, I'm a big fan of your work uh, and specifically i always appreciate how as a left-wing scholar you don't just speak to a purely academic audience um you you work in a number of different genres and write in many different kinds of publications uh really excellent scholarly presses and journals and, and also more popular left-wing publications and I just think that's vital for academics who care deeply about structural inequality to have um, those kinds of broader conversations than than ones housed purely within the academy. Um, and, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do the, this podcast originally in the first place. You know, in addition to our other aim of, of dunking on some 
terrible reactionary <laughs> trash, um, right. <laughs> which, by the way, Jews Without Money is 100% not <laughs> reactionary trash, right. in case that's right. not- They're uh, also books we adore. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and by the way, thank you for the, the gener- generous comment, but I, yeah. I, I think that's also, you know, this is what I really like. There's a new biography of gold, so there's been a little bit of a, a tiny little bump of interest in gold, uh, partially due to this new biography by Patrick Chura. And the point that Chura makes, I think is really important and, and uh, necessary to recover, is that two th- basically gold was a public intellectual, right? And, and in, in a way that we don't really have today any longer, you know, so most of his writing, so he has his novel, Jews Without Money, he has a number of kind of avant-garde plays that he wrote throughout his life. But most of his work was basically as a journalist, um, but as a, liter- as a literary journalist, right? Like, you know, if you think about it, it's sort of amazing. Like, what would it be like to have a literary critic with a column in one of those widely read literary publications who views literary criticism as a form of class war, right? Yeah, and it's yeah, just like, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's an entirely different sensibility about what an intellectual ought to be. And, and sure, it makes a point that basically gold was like a left-wing H.L. Mencken, and, and it was as yeah. important as Mencken in terms of, uh, well, in the sense that like Mencken sort of set the tone of like right. the, the era about what literary style is supposed to be like, right? right, and, right. and people read him as like a popular intellectual. And Gold was sort of the left-wing kind of anti-Mencken version of that. And, yeah. and Mencken is still kind of remembered as an asshole, but he's remembered. Whereas <laughs> Gold's, liter- Gold's journalism is yeah. actually, until I think Chura brought it up, has been con- unconsidered as kind of a literary genre itself, you know? Yeah. And so, and so yeah. I think in the sense that, yeah, if you're a left-wing intellectual, you know, it's sort of like, it was funny. I was like watching the, the Marx biography a couple of years ago, uh, biopic. Um, and, and the thing that I really loved is like, yes, Marx had to go to meetings, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah, you're yeah. a public intellectual, <laughs> you have to go to meetings and like talk to people, you know? And if, and if you, you know, don't, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, the first, like the first time Marx like goes to a meeting and like tries out his like ideas, the workers are like, Nah, nah, yeah, you know, yeah, no, yeah. Sure. Work, go, go back, go back, work that again. You know, so, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so I, you know, um, I again, this is this book's wonderful. It's beautiful, moving, often really, really funny, and and often very mm. sad communist masterpiece. And another reason I got super into it, it made ultra lib Alfred Kaysen big mad. Uh, apparently, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, I know, we'll talk more about that awful introduction he wrote, uh, which came out in the the end of history, nineteen nineties, where right. Kaysen is real sore that gold doesn't use big enough words and thinks the u.s exploits immigrant labor like oh wow like what a weird claim you know so shocking um so so that's awesome um but also you know early 20th century literature of immigrant communities and specifically uh left-wing literature is something i really uh just need to read more of i i I lived uh in my early 20s for a short time in new york city and my encounter with the lower east side was of a rapidly gentrified or long since gentrified space but i of course you you know knew it has this this fascinating and, and, and fraught history, not that gentrification is a deeply fraught, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean? And yeah, gold, gold's novel is just a fantastic window into the, the early 20th century space. Um, and come on, it, it ends with a, with a, with a pay to, to, Oh, workers revolution. You brought <laughs> hope to me, a lonely suicidal boy. You are the true Messiah. Oh, revolution that forced me to think, to struggle and to live. Oh, great beginning, which, you know, rad literally, uh, sign, mm-hmm. sign me up. So. <clears throat> It's the best. I mean, what, this, it has we had a better ending? Find me a better ending. Um, <laughs> it's also the perfect way to kick off new season. I didn't know this was season six, so huge congrats to, to all of us, and thank you so much for joining us, Benjamin. Um, this was such a great pick. We're looking. We're we have a hundred episodes right on the horizon. So yes, pretty cool. Yeah, we do. Yeah, gotta bake a cake. <laughs> uh, but another reason I love this, uh, in addition to 
many of the fine reasons that have uh, been given here today is that I love everything having to do with religion in America, specifically around this time. But most of what I work on and have read in this kind of vein comes from everyone's favorite fun guys, evangelical Protestants. So (laughs) yeah, they were a real laugh riot, uh, especially in their writings about poverty and things, mostly like virtual tour narratives, stuff like that. So it's a different, a whole different thing. And I really just appreciated that the end wasn't 14 pages of if you cry hard enough, that (laughs) helps to solve poverty. (laughs) I thought that was cool. It's nice to get to the end of something and be like, yeah, and then shut the book as opposed to being like, oh, no. (laughs) I feel like we did convince you as 20th century people, I convinced you that James Baldwin should be on your on your long list of people to think with. Oh yeah, hundred percent. No, yeah, no arguments there. I'm, I'm a huge. I'm I, Megan. You converted me. <laughs> You've converted me. But I think there is a lot to talk about seriously with respect to religion in this book. It being a Jewish novel and uh, social movements and poverty, and of course, can't wait to discuss Gold and his politics and the book's politics. But I have to shout out well what's been touched on, which is the comedy in this book. It's truly transcendent. Yeah, there yeah. are punchlines in here that remind you why they are called punchlines because they they hit they hit you right in the face and you <laughs> laugh and say ouch. <laughs> and there are a lot of other, I don't mean to say there are no funny Protestant novels that are in this vein too, but it's more like you find that yourself. It's not a funny thing happened to me on the way to playing the harp on a cloud with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not the real joke. Uh, it's more like this man dr- drunk drove his horse and buggy to hell. And then you just have to like kind of find it. But here we find out that you can actually get to righteous commitments from the time you swam in the East River like Kramer did and had to (laughs) kind of push vegetables and a bloated dog out of your way to get your backstroke form. I 100% was thinking of the Seinfeld episode where Kramer swimming in the East River when I was reading that chapter, yes. (laughs) Yep, yeah, it was, it's, it's an image, it's an image. The other image that really will stick with me from this is, uh, is the time that that your horse friend gets murdered, say, <laughs> and then all the neighborhood children sort of come to the corpse and form a jam band using only the orifices <laughs> of that of that treasured friend. Yeah. So, in conclusion, uh, this book is 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 gorgeous. It's it's sad. It's totally bizarre it's grotesque it's rousing it really is and there's stuff that you can really believe in in here and get excited about in a way that's uh different from getting excited about the intro which i was excited about for different reasons too (laughs) yeah i think we all got our blood up about that intro yeah Yeah. (laughs) got something up yeah uh so today we are talking about the proletarian novel racial and ethnic forms and Jewishness, the reception and I think misreception of this work around modernist and Cold War criticism, and some of this book's many gender questions. So Benjamin, will you give us just a summary of of the novel? So probably in some ways in that order, uh, sort of maybe the way to kind of think about this book. So probably the most important thing to think about in terms of Jews Without Money is that it was considered the most important proletarian novel 
uh, of the 1930s and 1940s, which was really sort of the heyday of working class literature uh, in the United States. And I think it's important to think about what proletarian literature is and was and how it's different than other kinds of literature about working class people. So America has a long tradition of writing about working class people, right? So there's 19th century realism, you know, William Dean Howells, Hazard of New Fortunes. Of course, there's, uh, you know, Jacob Reese's uh, uh, lantern shows of working class portraits of largely East Coast folks as well. And this kind of literature, this kind of realist literature or this kind of genre of photography is usually kind of about working class people. uh, And it sort of mediates their presence in America in this very kind of distant and a seemingly objective way. Dreiser does this as well. So American Tragedy, right, is kind of the prime example of a novel that is this kind of microscopic examination of the uh, impoverished psychology of a poor working class soul. And you you watch him from 30,000 feet and feel a kind of mystified sorrow about, uh, you know, his pathologies. And, and then sort of, you know, calmly meditate upon the problems of society from your well-appointed home, right? So, and that's the, that's the kind of, or, you know, uh, Rebecca Carter Davis's uh, Life in the Iron Mills, right? You start out in middle-class woman's house and you kind of go down the street and through the fog, right, and see the lives of the working class people inside of the factory, right? And so this this notion of kind of writing about working class people, like I said, has a long history in the United States, but it is often sort of novels about working class people from the perspective of a middle class viewer. This is kind of the point that Amy Kaplan makes in her social construction of American realism, that it's a kind of central park uh, idea of, of what literature is, right? It's supposed to be this nice place where you can sort of see the specimens, uh, you know, in a kind of artificial environment that is a kind of perfect democracy. And then, of course, go back to your nice uh, parkside apartment. Uh, and of course, there's also the history of the slave narrative as well, which it seems ostensibly to be about the perspective of the slave. But of course, these are mass mediated pieces as well. Of course, you know, they're <clears throat> published by anti slave societies, their forwards are usually done. Uh, they're re-edited by the usually white editors, oftentimes even rewritten by them. And even when the slave had some or ex-slave had some control over their own uh, narration, uh, usually there are so many introductions before the, the actually get to the slave narrative, assuring you that what you're reading is not really what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in some ways, these are also books that are kind of mediated by a kind of middle class, white middle class perspective. And so I, I think of proletarian literature as being, you know, the kind of Althusserian phrase, a kind of est- epistemological break, right? It, it, it is a rupture with an entire way of knowing, right? And that rupture is entirely political. So the rupture, of course, happened in a couple of different ways. One rupture, of course, was the Bolshevik Revolution, which I think most people, when they hear the phrase proletarian literature, that's what they think of. There's this sort of brief phase in the 1920s of proletcult as being kind of the official kind of literary form uh, of the Soviet Union. And proletcult, you know, had a kind of official life in the Soviet Union for about five or six years, and it's important to think about, right? And so in some of the some of the sort of shockwaves of the Bolshevik Revolution do sort of reach America. Essays by Lukash and Lunacharsky and, of course, Maxim Gorky's work gets to the United States. Uh, and there's some things, really important things to think about what the Soviet Union was trying to do with proletarian literature in the 1920s. And I think probably Lukash is the most important person to think about here. So Lukash's entire point is that the working class imagination and the working class point of view has been reified by capital, right? Um, and so in one sense that the working class person is alienated from their own sense of who they are in the world. But there's this other way in which the working class perspective is also can see the entire totality of capitalism, right? Because yeah. they are literally in the gears of it, right? And so the, the working class subject is sort of split between being the perspective that can actually undo the entire 
kind of world of capital and see uh, its contradictions and mm-hmm. see uh, who is the victim of it, right? Yeah. At the same time that they're reified, right? And that they actually have a kind of alienated sense of self. And so the goal of the novel, right, is this dialectical move in which the working class figure comes to actually develop their own class consciousness, like right. comes to develop their own subjective point of view, right? And so Maxim Gorky's mother is probably kind of one of the prime examples of that, right? Um, there's also uh, like Gladkov's Cement is another kind of great novel in that tradition. And so this comes to the United States uh, in a slightly different package. And and I think it's a really important thing just to note about American literary history and probably also the communist movement uh, is that people always want to basically say that, you know, the communist party is sort of the same wherever it is, you know, basically all communists were a little Stalinist. Uh, Soviet literature, uh, you know, is basically doctrinaire and didactic and it's all the same wherever you go. And uh, I would say that the proletarian novel kind of arrived in the United States uh, more in the form of kind of 1920s New York bohemianism Mm -hmm. uh, and then also in terms of the Harlem Renaissance, right? And so Mike Gold's uh, kind of origin story is basically as a working class New York hipster who's like (laughs) hanging out with like Harlem Renaissance people, right? right? Uh, And, And thinking about race, capitalism, free love, I mean, some of like Gold's 1920s stuff is really wild. Uh, he has this two plays, I think, that kind of get at kind of his bohemian origins. One is this bohemian play set in the Soviet Union where a working class woman has three different husbands um, and each husband like services her in like a different way every night, you know, and that's the revolution, you know, so like, it sounds like she a great, at, yeah, great play yeah, for us. She, <laughs> yeah. She works on the gears in the factory and then yeah. her gears get worked on at home. And that's, that's the way this all works. And, and before Google calendar, and, exactly, yes. <laughs> I had to schedule all this. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the other uh, play that he wrote, uh, it's called Hoboken blues. And it's basically a kind of black revolutionary view of looking backwards. It's um, Bellamy's looking backwards. It's this African-American dude who has this dream of a socialist utopia set in Hoboken, of all places, uh, then wakes up the next day and realizes that he's basically living not in a utopian future, but in a capitalist hellscape. So it's sort of the opposite of Mm -hmm. Bellamy's looking backwards. Mm -hmm. And the really amazing part about this play is that all the white people are played by black people in whiteface. And so it's a kind of explicit rejection of the 1920s fad of blackface performance, right? And so it's this kind of mockery of, of, of sort of black people mocking white people. And so Gold's origin story basically is, yeah, the Lower East Side, working class New York, the socialist movement, kind of hegemonic Jewish socialism, but also sort of the cultures of anti-racism that are really important to the left, uh, the home Renaissance, bohemianism, free love, all this kind of stuff, which of course, you know, has its some of its analogies and kind of like, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg and kind of the early days of revolution, but really it's kind of an American formation, right? And also that's sort of the moment of high modernism, right? And it was also the moment that sort of gold is coming up as a young man. And so all of these things kind of come together and form kind of what gold understands to be proletarian literature in the United States. So yeah, so proletarian literature for gold is literature about the subjectivity of working class people. He has this amazing passage in this essay towards a proletarian art he writes in the 1920s, where he talks about how he is the tenement pouring through him, right? So like he is a conduit for the tenement, like he is the voice of the working class people. So he's not, you know, from 30,000 feet like Howells, right? He's literally like his his own body, right? Is like speaking the truth of, of, of working class identity. And so that's that's one obvious, you know, connection between him and the, you know, sort of Soviet avant-garde. But the other part for for gold that's really important 
is that it's a novel about race and about uh, racial liminality. It's a novel about the connection between revolutionary politics and race. And then also it's a modernist novel, right? And, and, but it's a proletarian modernist novel. It's, it's modernism is not about, you know, esoteric and complicated style or many allusions and literary references, although you could actually do a kind of uh, midrash to some of the kind of Jewish references that go throughout this book. But really it's modernism is this kind of proletarian grotesque, what, what Gold ref- or uh, Michael Denning refers to as a proletarian grotesque, this kind of sensationalist, grotesque, broken kind of montage, right? Uh, and so on one level, it's kind of Eisenstein's montage, but it's also this kind of modernism of grotesquerie yeah. um, in which it sort of celebrates, like what I mean, it's just, and the, the novel is full of these. I mean, it's just like, thumbing through it this morning and there's a scene of like you know the the horrifying uh snowman right who like do they the kids build it in the, yeah. in the morning and by the end of the day it's like this wraith-like grotesque with like you know the people have been urinating on you know there's images of horses with broken legs there's the prostitutes you know meaty thighs on the street yeah. there's the friend of mike gold whose head is found severed underneath the carriage I mean, it's just full of these. There's uh, one of my favorite metaphors is the rain sound like the blood of gangsters bullets, you know, and it's just like it's full of these like incredibly grotesque and bizarre images. And so I think that the proletarian modernism that gold represents does sort of come out or is part of the shockwaves of the Bolshevik Revolution, but really takes a very kind of American ethnic form. And that's the way to understand kind of American proletarian literature. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, if the, just the, on the idea that the kind of grotesque uh, yeah. and, and its presence here, uh, which I, yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's inescapable with, but mm. I will say like, so, I mean, the last uh, kind of uh, naturalist novel that we read on the podcast was, uh, was McTeague at the start of mm. last season, you know, I mean, Frank Norris, I mean, sort of socialist, but also with these like very reactionary <laughs> races. Yes. Yes. And, and, Semitic among other things, but but so unlike unlike that version of that sort of like f- focus on the grotesque, it, it's very clear to me throughout reading this that like the grotesque conditions are like material condi- like this, this is he's not doing any like ethnic typing or shit like right. that right I mean no th- this is about like so I mean one one line and you, you mentioned the the uh, you know the, the line about the prostitutes uh, meaty thighs kind of like spilling over in the, this kind of tenement hallway which I mean definitely feels uh, cruel when you read it but the more and but the more you read it it's like I mean but this is this is all this is like the conditions that people uh, are kind of forced into by material rela- uh, relations and circumstances. And one line that I know uh, Kaysa quotes at, at, to kind of roll his eyes at, but which is like, yeah, I mean, this is just flat out true. Um, I, I have never heard of a millionaire's daughter who became a 50 cent whore who was ruined by dance halls, which it's like, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, that, that's that, this, right. So it's not like there's something, I, I don't know, some individualist failing that has created, you know, the, you know, the sex workers and it, it, the, the way they are, it is like, this is the, this is what poverty produces, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the most uh, famous scenes is uh, uh, Gold talking about bedbugs, right? And yeah, if you want yeah, to know yeah. poverty, you have to know bedbugs. And so it yeah. goes through this entire, like, intense, grotesque description of what it's like to have bedbugs and, like, you know, the sores and the itching and the bleeding and the blood on your sheets and the, you know, the grotesquerie of having the bugs all over your house. Yeah. And just like the, the, you know, the fact that you can't sleep, right? And yeah. just the way in which, you know, these tiny little insects entirely take over your life. And he's saying, you know, if you want to understand poverty, this is what you have to understand, right? Is that it it is in your body, it is in your skin, it is part of your life, and it makes your life a living hell. But I think what's different between that and, yeah, the kind of McTeague or the Frank Norris or this kind of, you know, uh, naturalist novel 
is first of all, um, you know, it's told from the point of view, right, of these characters, but it's told with a with a loving sympathy, mm-hmm. right? Like a kind of, and and you get the sense, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of the prostitutes are characters in the story who are friends with Gold's mother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Gold's mother has a kind of complicated, uh, you know, she's a pious woman, and of course, thinks they've gone astray, but she always takes them in and you know feeds them and talks with them and gives them counsel. And I think that's kind of the attitude of the novel. It's you know the novel is literally like a Jewish mother on uh, the Lower East Side saying, "I love you all. I'll feed you, even if you know you're driving me crazy." Uh, the other thing, also too, is that you know I think humor has a really important role to play in humanizing people. In this novel, are funny. You know, mm-hmm. they're really funny, and and everybody's funny except what well, a couple like like the Jewish dry goods merchant, uh, the Zionist Jewish. Like he's like the one villain, uh, you know, on the Lower East Side. But everybody else is like funny and human and warm and rich and complex. And I think that's one of the roles, the constant, like this novel is a novel of dialectical contradictions, right? So, you know, New York City is a space of modernity and and speed and lights and excitement. It's also a place of death and bedbugs and horror and poverty. And the characters themselves are rendered in these dialectical contradictions, right? So on the one level, the horrors are these meaty legs spilling out into the hallway. On the other sense, you get the sense that he has sympathy for them. But also, you get the sense that that he's kind of intrigued by them, like, and, and not intrigued in like a, in a you know, purient way, um, but just sort of fascinated by who they are. That his own family members might go, you know, I mean, you know, these are people, you know, his own sisters. He's aware could end up as 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 prostitutes, and so this is not something removed from him. And he's like deeply interested in the humanity of pretty much everybody yeah. that he sees. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of witmanic kind of presence uh, that he yeah. has here. No, you're, yeah. you're 100%. The, the, the sex workers definitely, beca- I mean, ver- become like real characters. They're not just right. uh, in the background types. And you're right. I, I, guess, I think it's Baruch Goldfarb. Uh, I think that's the name yes. of the dry goods um, yes. or the Tammany Hall guy. Like, yeah, he, right. he is probably the only like fairly straightforward villain. All, all the, I mean, even the gangsters are, I mean, they're oh, humanizing yeah. moments. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, Louis One Eye is like a horrible human being, yeah. right? You know, yeah. who like wants to like literally take human beings captive and, tra- yeah. and 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 traffic them. But he's also the person who like beats the hell out of all the Christian other Christian gangs and like defends old Jewish men on the street, right? So like you know, so so the gangsters are and the the prostitutes, sex workers. These people are all dealt with sympathetically. The only people who are not dealt with sympathetically are basically the Jewish capitalists. Uh, so Blue yeah. Gold for a designist, for a goods merchant, is like the one Jewish villain in the book. So yeah, I think the one way you can sort of tell uh, that humanization is is flagged is that you don't just have the one-eyed guy. You don't just right. have like Johnny One-Eye. You find <laughs> out why he has one eye. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's this terribly sad, terribly sad and tragic thing. And I think that part of the reason the jokes work so well and why they're so essential to this book is because America is the biggest joke of the novel. Like America just like you get there and it pantses you and you're just you're walking around you think you're going to have a great time and then you realize that it has it has been a joke and you're the butt of it. And so what do you do then? You tell these stories about what's happened to you and sometimes your friend's head winds up like attached to a buggy wheel and it's all this gross weird stuff but it's sort of it's what happens in the aftermath of a joke when when something has happened to you that's tragic and has turned your life into this nightmare that's so thoroughly awful that you can just laugh. Yeah, and I, I think there's a couple of ways to think about this book as a book about America. And I think one way to think about it is um, this is really writing back against the kind of assimilationist uh, immigrant 
story that is really, you know, what, what uh, the, uh, the critic Lisa Lowe referred to as the teleology of assimilation, right, or the teleology of progress that kind of undergirds most immigrant novels. And this novel, uh, basically, you know, America, as you said, it punks you, right? So, you know, Gold's father believes in America more than anyone else, right? He believes it's the place where hard work will make you rich. And Gold's father, uh, you know, is basically a tragic story. You know, he basically prevents a union from coming into his own workplace. Mm-hmm. And because he prevents this union, he pitches to his near death uh, on a catwalk yeah. and is basically disabled for the rest of his life, right? Um, but his father yeah. never gives up what Gold calls to a silly man dream, which I love that he puts yeah. it that way. He's yeah. like, my. he, he doesn't just say as silly immigrant dreams, he's silly man dreams, right? Yeah. Uh, which he, he sees as being the sort of joke upon his father. And so, and so, yeah, so I think that one thing that the novel is doing is that America is a punchline, but in the same way that comedy kind of undermines the idea of America, right? So because America's like, like there's nothing less funny than a happy ending, right? And America is all about happy endings. Yeah. And the immigrant story is basically the story of happy endings. And so it says, you want to rewrite the story of America? Fine, you tell it as a joke, right? And a joke is basically the butt is on the teller of the joke, right? And and so, yeah. And I think the other way to think about this book too, in that sense also is, is Yiddish theater. Um, and that Yiddish theater, like the way to tell a joke in, in Jewish comedy is you're the butt of your own joke, right? Uh, and that's how you tell the difference between a Goyish comedian and a Jewish comedian. A Goyish comedian will make fun of somebody else. A Jewish comedian will make fun of themselves. And, and you know, this is why Larry David is the last white man who's watchable <laughs> is because he's the butt of his own joke, right? All the time. And like, he's like the worst person on his show. And, and so, and I think the same thing is kind of going on with this book that, that the per- anybody who thinks that they're going to make it is basically uh, an asshole and, and they're going to have the rug pulled out from under them. Uh, can, so can I ask one question about mm-hmm. um, what, what you, Benjamin and what, and what Megan and Katie, you guys to think is happening with just the kind of structure of the plot, because as we've been talking, it occurs to me like, well, how, you know, how would you just kind of say like what this story is about? And it's, it's kind of hard because it is a lot of vignettes. That's not to say like really bad things or really, you know, transformative things don't happen to characters, but it's all, it's, it, there's a lot of like, you know, like, is there a linearity that it's building towards? And for the mm-hmm. most part, I don't think there is with the exception of like the, the event you mentioned, like his dad who, who, uh, yeah, what he calls of that the upright uh, pauper like upright conservative pauper my father right, right? which i think right. is such a great that was a great line. great line can we go back yeah. just before we get there tristan because yeah, i yeah, had a yeah, thought please. just on yeah. like uh lewis one eye who i also just it is a quite vivid character yeah. um depiction and this is one of the things i love in proletarian literature is when they have just a sort of like cry from the gut in the middle of the writing when yeah. he's talking about how this character had become violent because he had been sent to prison and so the line that gold says is is there any gangster who is as cruel and heartless as the present legal state which is just such yeah. a like yes. amazing yeah. i'm like yeah. misty right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> thinking yeah. about how yeah. how amazing moments like that are and yeah. and what when they appear in something again like native son where where there's yeah. these sort of like as though the voice of the writer no longer can com- control his red, his yeah. his true red heart. And so I think that that's part of that too, is that like, I don't think Gold gives a flying fuck about the legal status of a person's work. And that that's no. part of it too, right? So it's like being a sex worker is work in the same way that like working in a factory is work, yeah. working in a sweatshop, working on the street. He just is not committed to the state's legal recognition of those tasks. Yeah. And so like that's part of the the thing that Katie you're connecting to, I think, with 
with his character is like, yeah, I mean, he is kind of a shithead, but we also go like, well, the state legal system is designed to make yeah. you worse. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Lewis one eye is, uh, you know, uh, was mentioned, uh, you know, loses his eye in prison, right? He's beaten uh, to the point where he's, he's, he's blinded. But I think, you know, kind of like Native Son, you mentioned Native Son, um, you know, Richard Wright's interest in Bigger Thomas uh, was not just kind of Chicago school sociology, let's look at the twisted mind, but he actually <laughs> saw Bigger Thomas as a kind of potential proletarian revolutionary, right? Oh, and, yeah. and then he saw that Bigger could kind of, you know, he says in, in How Bigger Is Born, uh, bigger could go two ways. He could become a communist revolutionary, or he could become a fascist. Right? Yeah, but, right. But, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, but he—he's someone who who is angry, and motivated, and rebellious, and and a state, and sort of a subjectivity in revolt. Right. And so, in that sense, I think that's part of the attraction to gangsters in in uh, in this book and people who resist the legal coercive nature of the state, whether they're sex workers or uh, gangsters. So, the other hero of the book, obviously is uh, the person ignominiously named the N-word by the community. Um, and he said, you know, he would die for justice, right? You know, but he's also somebody who, you know, engages in crime, uh, engages in violent acts. Uh, but also some of those violent acts are trying to revenge himself on police. Like yeah. he has this one policeman that he follows over rooftops, like throwing bricks at him for months until the policeman like loses yeah. his mind, you know? And so, and so, so yeah, so he sees these like these these gangsters as people who are potential revolutionaries, right? And I think this actually bleeds into Tristan's question: What is a what is a te- kind of teleological? Is there a teleological arc of the novel? Um, yeah, sorry, yeah. To- and sorry, just to, just to develop that just a, a little bit more. And sorry, just the, the character you, you mentioned, who I don't think we talked about before, is yeah, his the, the nickname he's given is the N word. Just to be clear, and I don't know that I don't really have a, a point of this other than it's a clearly uh, has something to do with the kind of like racialization of the space. But he, he's a Jewish kid who who right. is given is is given that that name and i think there are references to uh to blacks living in the area but they're Mm -hmm. they're pretty they're they're not this is almost this is very predominantly a jewish community with uh irish and italian neighborhoods kind of like on uh, like surround just the the kind of the the, the ethnic geography of the of the space um but sorry what i was going to say chinatown what's that yeah so there's actually a line about so christie street there's actually a line about it so yeah the neighborhood is predominantly or at least the the project housing that he's living in uh, but he says Negroes, Chinese, Gypsies, Turks, Germans, Irish, Jews, and there was even one American on the street. Right, um, right, okay, and, yeah. yeah. So, so, so no, that's interesting because actually, yeah. I I sort of then just flattened out um, what is what what the novel makes clear is. I mean, it's okay. This is a Jewish neighborhood, but there's actually a lot uh, more. Uh, there's a lot more groups of people kind of living in very close proximity there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, sorry. What I was saying about the the the, the kind of telos or the that this isn't like a, a kind of like uh, kind of classic built buildings from narrative um megan you're, you're right like a lot of the most amazing lines of this are not lines that or even episodes that do get to any kind of telos so um like yeah your your uh your point about lewis one eye another thing that really stuck with me is that the 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 yard of the tenement building they lived in was a graveyard of like the mm-hmm. 17th and 18th century like so kind of colonial new york and like the kids are like digging those boats out and like having those kind of prized possession another just like amazing thing but it's not but that's not that doesn't that that's there's not a linearity there the only time when we really do see a linearity is uh benjamin the the central kind of like tragedy you mentioned when his dad like shatters his legs and can't work anymore and they lose the house they were working on buying um and that does i mean like yeah so he he ends up having uh, uh, mikey uh ends up having to to go work but but largely it is like this space is one of kind of vignettes um and it's mm-hmm. not i i don't think for most of the novel there is that sense of the telos building so i'm just kind of wondering you know for for you and, and for everyone else, what we um, 
like how, yeah, like how, what, why we think that that structure is the structure that we have and why that's important to the way it's thinking about space or the way it's like kind of thematizing the, the, the political ideas it wants to. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think in some ways the, the way that this novel is misread by Cold War critics is that it is one of these, as Barbara Foley refers to it, a radical buildings roman, where basically the entire point is to sort of script the character and their path to revolution, and it's predictable and rather prescriptive. Uh, in that sense, you know, the sort of the didacticism, right, of proletarian literature is the end comes before the beginning. We all know how it's going to happen, right? There's going to be a strike at the end and, and everyone will become a perfect heroic socialist. And on some level, that sort of happens at the end of this book, right? There is a very brief scene at the end where the, the Mikey here is a street corner socialist order and, you know, converts to socialism, the true messiah. Um, but yeah, no, this novel is not linear at all. It's a series, as you say, of, of vignettes, of jokes, of you know, little uh, images, stories, a kind of Whitmanic sprawl across New York City. And I think actually, the if there's any kind of telos to the book in some ways, or perhaps a narrative arc to the book, it's actually the relationship to N-Word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really important to think about why he's in the book and why he's the hero of the book, right? So Mikey's the narrator of the book, but N-word on some level is the hero, and he refers to them as as the hero, right? And so one obvious context, right, this is 1920s America, this is right after the passage of the Johnson-Reed Act, right? So Jews were legally seen as not white, Uh, their passports were stamped as Hebrew, Uh, there were a lot of restrictive covenants, Jews couldn't, you know, could be fired from any jobs. Uh, this, of course, was just after the first Red Scare, uh, which was incredibly virulently anti-Semitic. But the Johnson-Reed Act, of course, uh, you know, explicitly banned Jews from immigration to the United States with tragic consequences during the Holocaust a few years later. So, so this is a moment where Jews were, were phenotypically uh, and biologically racialized in the United States. Um, and so at one level, uh, the fact that this person who is described as short, swarthy, curly-haired, and flat-nosed is the hero of the novel and thus nicknamed the N-word, uh, by the neighbors, is to basically uh, link Jews uh, in solidarity uh, with African Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. and that's actually the exact opposite, right, of the kind of post-war trend of Jewish life, which was to de-link Jews from uh, the dense urban inner-city neighborhoods that were often in close proximity to African Americans. So one of the things that's really important in this novel is that you know, this is the Lower East Side. Uh, Gold's family lives in, it's a, it's a Jewish part of the Lower East mm-hmm. Side, but he lives in proximity. It's a multi-ethnic neighborhood, right? And so one of the kind of, I guess, prescient moments, right, is when Herman wants to go live out in the suburbs of Borough Park, right? Yeah. Um, with the, the all-Jewish yeah. white suburbs of Borough Park. And so the novel is actually against this teleology yeah. of Jewish assimilation, right? Yeah. And saying, yes, there is a teleology of Jewish life in America, and it's about assimilation. And this novel is actively resisting it. In fact, it's resisting it so much our hero is someone who uh, is identified as African-American, right? Yeah. And, and instead of rejecting that, embraces it, right? Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, you know, there's also the kind of racial liminality of that, right? So because, of course, the novel doesn't think that A.B. is his real name. A.B., um, uh, you know, is not actually African-American. The novel does not make any pretenses that he is. It's, it's, it's an embracement of the way in which uh, Jews are racialized. It's a positive identification of class difference, right, um, and anti-assimilation. So the teleology basically is actually an anti-teleology. The teleology is saying, no, we actually were refusing the teleology of assimilation and we're refusing the teleology of belonging and that we're gonna retain this kind of diasporic liminality 
that gold identifies with a kind of working class Jewish uh, identitarian formation. And so, and I think that's the other part that's really important to note about proletarian literature. Yes, there are bad didactic proletarian novels, and we can talk about them. We maybe should have a show at some point on bad <laughs> proletarian didactic novels that are certainly out there. But the really the best proletarian novels in, in the American tradition, uh, this one, uh, Richard Wright's Native Son, we talked about Carl Spulison's America's in the Heart, are actually rather open, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're they're actually rather unteleological. Um, their endings are actually really indeterminate. Um, and they're more about sort of exploring the dialectical material contradictions of capitalism in America, right? Yeah. And so that's, I think that's what this novel is trying to do. And the ending, you know, yes, it points to, yes, you should get yourself to a socialist meeting at some point, you know, <laughs> postscript. Yeah. But that's not what this novel is really about. Well, you know, I would so. suggest that it's also anti-bourgeois in a quite specific way and anti professionalization right because this this idea that like you should be a doctor and at school they say like oh you could and but he can't go to high school because he has to work and so we know that he's never going to be a doctor because that's not the ideal that this book that's that's a very specific teleology right is like out of the ghetto into the profession right. and yeah, there's, it's yeah, against that. Yeah, there's this great Grace Pilly line about, you know, her father who was a doctor, you know, he shot like a surface air missile into the middle class, right? You know, and, and I always love that image. And yeah, that is like the the Jewish story, right? You know, they go tenement and then they go to Harvard and then they become a doctor and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, this novel really, first of all, it, it makes fun of uh, his own father, uh, Herman, for having those kind of class uplift yeah. ideologies and dreams and the kind of, you know, the, 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 the episode where they go to the, the suburb and it's just this wasteland, right? The suburb, the sort of future suburb of Jewish success is literally seen as like this, this culturally and socially impoverished place full of like, you know, the, the woman uh, who's in the house is described as glittering like an ice cream parlor yeah. uh, which i thought was yeah, like yeah, yeah. one of another one of these like incredible grotesque images yeah right so it's like tacky it's like out in the middle of nowhere garish it's also empty um and yeah so so the whole novel embraces basically being downwardly mobile and and i think this is a kind of where mike gold's kind of bohemianness kind of comes into the text right you know so it's this fusion of kind of proletarian sensibilities but also like mike gold's kind of like you know, it seems like a Gen X thing. It's like, you know, the only beautiful soul is one that's like <laughs> not going anywhere, you know, and, yeah. and Mike Gold was actually, Mike Gold himself really believed in that. Like he was famously dirty, didn't like washing his clothes, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways. Um, cool, cool dude. So, I, I, and actually, th- this uh, this I think gets to some of Katie's question or about like um, you know, the, the mother too, right? Uh, so I and and so I mean, one way, I, and Katie, I, I'm this is yeah, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this, definitely. So what I, I do have a question, like what what it like what it is that like fuels Herman's kind of like reactionary, uh, I align with the bosses sort of mentality. And there is, yeah, I mean, one is the class, the, the fantasy of class ascendancy for sure. Mm-hmm. I did he wonder says, though- I want to be a boss and I'm like taking yes. notes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. Capital B, like it is in, right. again, in right in 12 million black voices, he spells it with the capital B. <laughs> but And that is funny, but the fact that he has- like that's funny and ridiculous, but the fact that he's been and and his harping on the the money he's lost is sort of this thing that's like his his laughable father, but it's actually quite sad what's happened to him. Yes, and they, they both yes. they are yes. they're both together, and that's that's why I like thinking about this as an not an like not an unsentimental novel, but an but an anti sentimental novel works because there's so much sentimentality baked all. Baked yeah. into like, it because for one thing, like yeah, the da- the dad's view of kind of America is 
So sad about Elias. But but what I was going to ask on the, the gender question is like, yes, one, Herman uh, definitely is buying into a certain like uh, U.S. narrative of class ascendancy. But I also did wonder if, if like gender and like kind of like like, you know, and, and Herman like Herman has a very fraught relationship with a kind of old world patriarchy. Like one of the reasons he like ran away to America was because like he wanted to get out of this arranged marriage. But and yet like it is the father that is the like, yes, like work hard, bootstraps, that bullshit. It's the mom who like like when you know one of the 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 the, the tensions of that house they're gonna buy out in brooklyn is like the mom's like i don't want to fucking live here you know my community <laughs> right, right. is on the lower east side and so i did yeah i mean i yeah i anyway I, one of the things we wanted to talk about in addition to like capitalism and proletarian literature is uh the, the kind of function of gender here and i mean katie i'd be kind of curious your your thoughts there on the, on the mother but also like uh everyone else just what... i also want to know why she's more from than yeah yeah the rest yeah. of the family She's more devout. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's devout in this very interesting way, yes. too. Yeah. Like, not she, – she's not doing the same kind of – like, debating about about uh, whether it's okay – it's not okay to shave your beard, but it's okay to use, like, a depilatory cream. She's not right. involved yeah. – she's not involved in the – those nitty-gritty debates, but she is – she has this, like, incredibly strong sense of what it means to be a Jew, and for her, it it means exactly what she does – it means not being able to refuse when somebody knocks on your door and says, my son is choking, yeah. it, it, even though you you really can't stand the person. It means uh, it means lecturing, but still welcoming in the sex worker who ultimately winds up and she's telling her to get out of the business. And she she ultimately drinks poison and says, like, uh, mom, I'm out of the business now. Yeah. You know, that's her, I think, way of being her family is beyond her home and that's her way of being faithful and she doesn't get disappointed in the same way that you would if you're trying to like bring a fancy pants rabbi over and um and change things that way you know she just she is i i don't want to say she operates by instinct but i think she operates by some kind of i don't know i don't want to say moral righteousness either but she just sort of she just does what the what she thinks the right thing is, and she likes to go into the forest and hunt mushrooms, and that also is another way of her being in community, yeah, even imaginary too. You know, like I picked mushrooms as a girl, and so did you. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a line here, um, uh, it's the beginning of chapter seven, where he says, "With female realism, she, as in Gold's uh, uh, Mikey's mother, she tried to beat the foolish male dreams out of Herman's head, right? And so it's very clear that he associates the mother with a kind of proletarian realism. Like realism is a loaded term, right, for a proletarian writer, right? So yeah. he's she's almost saying like she is the she is the author of the genre that I am trying to depict, and she kind of becomes the proletarian hero in the story, right? She's the one who goes to work in a cafeteria and befriends all the other workers in the cafeteria and becomes kind of like a shop steward, you know, in this way, because she gives everyone advice and comforts them and things along those lines. Yeah. And I think the other important context, though, for this is, you know, there's a, there's a long argument in Jewish culture about what observance means and, and how to think about it and how to think about it in terms of gender. And it has to do with the home versus the temple and and the home is sort of the feminine space and it's the the space of a kind of more secular kind of less i don't know uh temple-based less patriarchal form of jewish culture mm-hmm. um and uh and so i think the contrast you're absolutely right the contrast is between the mother 
as this pious woman whose piety actually expresses itself mostly in secular concern for people versus this, you know, fancy pants rabbi who runs off with like every, the community's money, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and so, and, and that's kind of his last comment yeah. on official Jewish religion. And so, and or so, yeah, like, so I think it's love, right? So one of the things we do see her do is like, candles on Shabbos, which is very sort of like about a loving gesture that it's that it's right. um, not the version of ceremony that feels he's, he's not a fan of Yom Kippur, let's just say. This no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. And, and the last point on that, too, I think there's also a long argument about gender in in even traditional uh, Jewish culture. I mean, there's Daniel Boylan's work, you know, on heroic conduct when he talks about this notion of, you know, this sort of sweet and gentle man and the the kind of uh, more aggressive and forceful woman is actually a kind of diasporic Ashkenazi ideal, and it was formed exactly in kind of contradistinction to kind of Christian dominant forms of masculinity and gender uh, coming out, you know, from the Middle Ages to the present, right? And so the father both, you know, I think is kind of split in some ways, both as being kind of a one of these kind of sweet gentlemen, right? He there's a really sort of gentle and lovely side to the father. He's a storyteller, you yeah. know, he's yeah. he's funny. Uh, you know, he obviously just loves, you know, people in this way, has these, you know, long arguments until three in the morning. Um, but he also has these silly man dreams. And I think the man dreams, if, sort of according to Boyeran's model, are the dreams that are associated basically with being Goyish, right? It's being Christian. And so, and so I think, and that's the other way to think about this kind of debate in the novel between success and failure, between man and woman, between proletarian and capitalist. It's this debate on one level about uh, gender and uh, the way in which capitalism conscripts masculinity, but it's also this debate about Jewish culture uh, that is actually a very long debate um, between secularity, religion, temple to home, and what gender means in a particularly Ashkenazi diasporic context. Um, mm-hmm. so. I mean, she, like, she, Katie, the mother, or, tries to organize a rent strike, which I just, it's yeah. another one of those yeah. moments of just, you know, p- completely getting all misty when I read about, like, to me, that's that's quite a heroic moment in this novel, or at least for how it's framed. That's how I think of it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's sure. in some ways like one of the the hero of this. She could be considered as the hero of this novel too. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of that's one way that I definitely read it. And that there's that line: I could never be faithless to to poverty or pe- a person in poverty because it would be to be faithless to my mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, who showed me what. It what it mean you know what the right. what the meaning is. Oh yeah, there's just there's a there's a line which describes the mother as having a quote unquote dark proletarian instinct, and I think the word dark is really interestingly chosen, particularly given that that the that you know N word A B is the other hero of the story, right? And so the proletarian instinct is kind of aligned a with like non traditional you know non masculine or non traditional gender forms, but it's also aligned with this with this question of darkness, right? Uh, that is not being white. And, you know, this novel is against a bunch of things, right? You know, Jewish capitalists, Christian capitalists, but it's definitely against an idea of normative whiteness. And, and I think, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of it's, it's, if anything, that's like the thing that is kind of beating home over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so can yeah, we like sure. get to this Kazan intro? Because I just think we have to <laughs> yeah. talk shit on it. It's so yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and what- infuriating. And one question too, I would have, in addition to any other, because uh, we've talked a lot about context actually, but any other context we should, uh, you know, keep in mind with this. But is that like okay? So I've got a couple questions. So this was so that the case and introduction is from the '90s, the mid '90s. This was kind of republished in again that end of history, like we won sort of 1990s moment. Why 
<laughs> and what the, <laughs> what the fuck did Kazen think he was doing? Um, you know, and and yes. So anyway, I'll shut up and uh, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that, Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, actually, in some ways, the Kazen intro. I'm not glad you brought it up. The Kazen intro, on some level, is why I'm obsessed about this book. Yeah. Um, you know, because yeah. when I, I came across this book in college, and I was just. I, you know, I love the book just kind of in, in, instinctively. I mean, I just thought, again, it's, as we've been talking, it's a funny book. It's, you know, it's it's lively, it's witty, it's brilliant, it's warm, you know, explosive, etc. Um, and I was like, I've never read an introduction like this before in my entire life, yeah. where the author seems to absolutely hate the book that he's introducing. And, and not to have read he, it? He, yeah, he, exactly not. He, yeah, he fucking says, my goal wasn't very bright. That's a direct yeah. quote. Like, what the yes, fuck? Like, you know? I know. And, and, and so, yeah. And so I think you have to think about, you know, why, first of all, why was Kazin chosen to introduce this yeah. book? Why did Kazin agree to introduce this book? Yeah. Why did he then introduce it and call uh, Mike Gold a bunch of names? And so, of course, one thing we have to talk about is what happened to Mike Gold after his heyday as a kind of, you know, literary guy. So Mike Gold, so, you know, we didn't talk that much about that, but Mike Gold was not just the author of this great novel. Um, Mike Gold was also the person who sort of shaped the literary sensibility of the 1930s, right? It's from a sort of perch at the New Masses where he was editor and prolifically wrote uh, columns. And so Mike Gold really was, you could say, um, it was actually referred to sometimes as derisively as literary commissar of, of, of American left-wing writing mm-hmm. in the 1930s. And so when the Cold War uh, began in earnest in the late 40s um, and the Red Scare uh, really sort of crushed the left, the literary left, the political left, the labor left, in the space of a few short years, Mike Gold went from being one of the best known and uh, well-respected, oftentimes, you know, people had issues with Gold was a, was a famously pugilistic and pugnacious person with strong opinions. Uh, my favorite, you know, sort of moment of kind of literary repartee was when Ernest Hemingway walks into Mike Gold's office of the New Masses and writes, Ernest Hemingway tells Mike Gold to go fuck himself um, uh, because Mike Gold had been insulting Ernest Hemingway in some column. And so, you know, and so this is the kind of passion. right to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so these are kind of passions that Mike Gold would but, you know, you have to be a literary somebody for Ernest Hemingway to get so offended yeah. to like walk to your office and then the third Napoleon Napoleonic person tell you to fuck off, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. and so he went from being that, you know, this person who, you know, probably the only person who got under Ernest Hemingway's skin this way, uh, to basically being a non-person in the space of a few, few short years. Um, he could publish nothing. Uh, his writing appeared nowhere but in communist publications, which were rapidly shrinking. He suddenly was out of money. Uh, his passport uh, was either at risk of being revoked or revoked, and at certain times he even had to go on the run. And so. So, uh, and he died penniless and totally obscure with his work being completely out of print, right? And so the, the Red Scare and the Cold War entirely ruined not only gold, but an entire generation of, of writers and, and, and dashed all of their works into literary obscurity. And so they've been, the 1930s left and 1940s left has been recovered in pieces. So the first piece of that recovery was the feminist movement in the 1970s, recovered people like Tilly Olson and Maradola Suri, these kind of Marxist feminists from the 1930s. Of course, there's always been a kind of uh, African-American studies interest in Black 1930s writers, kind of Richard Wright, probably most prominently, uh, or Margaret Walker or Ann Petrie, who are kind of writers kind of most aligned, or Gwendolyn Brooks, writers most kind of aligned with the literary left of the 1930s and 40s, Langston Hughes. And because of the civil rights movement, at least some of these people never exactly fell out of favor. Um, so some did, like Paul Robeson. But Richard Wright, even though he's never quite re- reestablished his kind of literary 
uh, stature that he had in the 40s. Uh, nonetheless, he's never exactly gone out of style, right? right. Um, well, and some people's uh, significance has also been reframed. So it's like, if you talk to a layperson about Du Bois, they don't know that he was a socialist. Right. Right, or that his right, passport right. was revoked, right? So it's right. like, yeah. okay, the people read a very particular version of Du Bois that isn't that doesn't remind us that there's that version too. Not that those are actually exactly. separable, but that that's like a right. a trajectory for another black writer who is that that piece is like just conveniently written out. Yes, exactly, and and that's been the sort of the, the I was going to say this is sort of the way in which Gold was kind of recovered in in the '90s. He's recovered a kind of a obscure Jewish author. Uh, who wrote a kind of ghetto pastoral, uh, you know, that's a kind of quaint window. It's like going to the tenement museum, tenement right. museum in New York City, you know, it's like, it's a quaint window. Uh, you know, you could read this book as like one of those remade rooms of a tenement, you know. And so Kazin's entire dismissal of this book as being badly written, uh, not very interesting, gold not being very bright, uh, is really about you know, two things. He thinks it's icky. icky. And I'm he just like, you're don't, like, why are you being such a prude? Like, not everybody, <laughs> yeah. needs, you know, it's just like, yeah. these yeah. people are disgusting. Shut up. When I said in the in, in my intro that um, he's he's mad that Gold doesn't use big enough words, that is like a direct quote. It's like, he uses right. all these single syllables and that's not right. fancy enough. You know, like, all right. right. Man, you know? <laughs> the, the most enraging part of this entire thing is um, is that uh, his per- that poverty explains the world and excludes everything else. Yeah. He says, laughing at. I'm <laughs> just like, have you? Do you know what poverty is? Did you? Did yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I know. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, it does exclude everything else. Because <laughs> when you're in poverty, all you're thinking about is poverty, and you're suffering. From, like, yeah. did you read about the bed bugs? Did you hear about the bed yeah, bugs? Did yeah, you read this? Yeah, exactly. Oh, How God, dare God. you not also be thinking about nice things while bed bugs are eating you alive? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, it's kind of like that famous poem about, uh, what is it, you know, you should think about something universal like a white unicorn, and, you know, the poet responds, yeah. a white fucking unicorn? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of Kazin's, Kazin's, you know, why yeah. aren't you... But, I mean, there's a class story here, too. So, you know, Kazin, of course, comes, you know, he talks about his own mother, right, you know, who comes from uh, working-class New York. And so there's a kind of embarrassment, you know, uh, of the recently class ascendant that their own shabby roots might be showing, right? And so gold on some level has to, in order to, I mean, there's, you know, surprise, surprise, there's a pretty big Jewish investment in the fact that like Jews have made it into the white middle class, right? And and that investment is partially real in terms of actual investments. Yeah. Uh, and that investment is also very psychological. And so Kazan I think is legitimately embarrassed by gold and wants to bury him, you know, right. and, and wants to pretend. And because, you know, gold is this kind of, you know, ghost in the machine, right, uh, for the sort of assimilation of Jewish whiteness. And, and it's a ghost in the machine in two ways. You know, one is this memory of Jewish communism and Jewish socialism, which once was quite hegemonic, right? So, you know, Tony Michaels and Karen Brogg kind of sort of talked about this kind of hegemonic Jewish socialism in which, like, most Jews actually, you know, identified uh, not only as liberals, I think, which is true today, but it's really on the left. And this was a very particular American phenomenon. You know, Tony Michaels sort of talks about, you know, sort of Jewish socialism as really made in America. And not that it didn't obviously also have its antecedents and and analogies um, in uh, Eastern Europe as well. And so, you know, there's this way in which gold has to kind of be politically destroyed. But there's also this way, too, in which kind of the memory of gold is just kind of embarrassing, like this kind of poor relative and embarrassing in a lot of ways. The other part about gold we haven't really talked about is his anti-Zionism, right? So this book is actually, you know, it's pretty clearly anti-Zionist. Like the one villain in the story 
is Baruch Goldfarb, the Jewish dry goods merchant, right? He has, you know, a labor spy outfit, vote rigging, Tammany Hall, and also wants to move Jews out into the suburbs, right? And and so Zionism is equated with whiteness, vote rigging, you know, bad class politics, and et cetera. And so that's the other part of gold that kind of has to be erased, is kind of diasporic, working class, left-wing anti-Zionism. And so, you know, the, the particular anger of Kazan is not just that, like, okay, we think gold's an idiot. It's like, he needs to destroy him. For Kazan to exist, gold has to be destroyed. And I think that's why the kind of peculiarity of this, like, again, I've never read, I mean, the intro to Mein Kampf, is nicer, you know, to Hitler. Um, you know, I remember reading Mein Kampf in high school and the, the intro is like trying to give a sort of context, you know, about Nazism. And so, yeah. There's really a lot um, of anti-Semitism everywhere. This doesn't come out of nowhere. It was just like, true, exactly, but... yeah. we uh, might think but, of him as a frustrated painter. Right. <laughs> well, speaking of the Hitler gold connection, you know, in the intro to this book, yes. um, you know, he talks about the Nazi coming in and, and laughing, ho, oh, oh, ho, Jews have money. So my friend, uh, Laura Tannenbaum, I was actually reading this book. I, so I, if, I, if you're friends with me for long enough, I will insist yeah. that you read this book and I'll badger you about it. Um, and so I finally badgered my friend Laura into reading this book and she's reading it in a cafe and someone looks at the book and says, Jews without money, ha, 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 ha. Right, that's literally what the Nazi said, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the yeah. intro. Sorry, that's a completely irrelevant aside. I just thought like- But yeah. but no, but actually, I, like, the, I'm like i glad that you mentioned that from, from Gold's intro, not, not Kazin's, when he's talking about, yeah, his, like his German translator, like, yeah, the Gestapo busts in, this is what she's working on. And yeah, they're like, they, you're like, oh yeah, Jews without money, ho, ho, ho. But like that, I, that was real, I mean, that just- I mean, I knew this was written in 1930, right? But like that just so reminded me of the actual like global context around this, which was, I mean, it, it just kind of smacks you in the face. Um, but then like, yeah, it's, it's also like, okay, so in the 1990s, we're reproducing like anti-red bullshit as we try to recover mm. this, this writer. That's weird and fucking awful, you know? <laughs> but, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we have to seek so Alfred Kazan is a self-hating Jew. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to, right? Like he's he's embraced these kind of white middle-class narratives of success. Exactly what Gold is is decrying in this book. And we have to understand that that Gold understands those narratives to be anti-Semitic. We haven't used the the A word very much. Uh, you know, we're talking about this book, but Gold understands those narratives yeah. as not only you know, being about whiteness and they're anti-black, but he also understands them as being anti-Semitic. And so we have to understand Kazan is an anti-Semite, basically, you know, or, or, or having embraced kind of anti-Semitic narratives about Jewish assimilation into whiteness um, on very particular terms, right? And, and I think one thing that's really important to note, so the other context for this novel that's really important and I think to think about it, you know, yes, this, this novel, you know, is happening in kind of the heyday, you know, classic era, you know, it's, it's Coca-Cola classic anti-Semitism period, you know, so, and, and so, you know, the heyday of Nazism, the Johnson Reed Act mm -hmm. in America, um, you know, the refusal even to let Holocaust uh, victims into this country, et cetera. And of course, also, also the heyday of, uh, you know, anti-Semitic restrictive covenants, you know, quotas at universities, all these kinds of things. So, you know, the big film that came out when Gold was writing this novel was, of course, The Jazz Singer, right? And The Jazz Singer is one of these anti-Semitic assimilation narratives that, you know, basically embraces anti-Blackness as its way for Jews to, to assimilate into America. And so one way to understand this book is, is the anti-Jazz Singer, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. instead of, you know, re, you know, rejecting, you know, wearing Blackface, the N-word sort of embraces Blackness, right, in this kind of working class sort of way. Um, instead of embracing whiteness in assimilation, you know, the character, you know, embraces being downwardly mobile. Instead of killing off the father 
uh, as being, you know, uh, against progress, the father actually dies because he believes in progress, right? And so the novel is basically a reversion, reversion of all these tropes. And so I think that the one thing that's really remarkable in a novel that is challenging anti-Semitism, it's not challenging anti-Semitism by doing this thing, the, the sort of cosmization of Jews, right? It's right. not trying to show this like perfect Jewish suburban family that follows all the rules. It shows a bunch of Jewish gangsters, right? And, and you think about like in today's context, this is what I love about proletarian, like Marxist proletarian liter- literature. In today's context, like what author to protest racism would write a story about violent gangsters to show you that, right. you know, my people is, you know, are, are, are worthy of respect. Well, right? and any you know? sort of like, that's part of what Kazen is getting so mad about too. And I, cause I was also feeling mad about this. And I texted Tristan, one of Kazen's lines about Richard Wright, who I keep talking about, which is that like, Wright is dependent on violence and shock to astonish the reader by torrential scenes of cruelty, hunger, rape, murder, and flight, and then enlighten him by crude Stalinist homilies. And it's like, <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, I think the violence in that book is by pure accident, yeah. and Richard Wright just didn't know what he was doing, and it had nothing to do with making a specific well, racialized it, claim about the percep- yeah. about the operations of the state, and that, like, this character is, you know, this is, that novel in part is about prison being everywhere, right? So it's yeah, like, right. it's, yeah. he's a prisoner before he's a prisoner, and that violence would, would be a facet of the prison state. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and also forgetting too, I'm mean, kind of a point that, that Tristan was also making about uh, the bed bugs. Um, you know, Richard writes, he witnesses his uncle's lynching, right? You know, yeah. so, yeah. Uh, and so, so to think that violence is somehow gratuitous, yeah, you know, I, mean, I, know. Richard, right? I mean, it's just like how obtuse and racist can you be? And his I, bad tenement animal is the rat. Yeah. That's his. Uh, <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah, we should also, we should, there's also be a, a, a podcast episode on, on on terrible animals of the tenement uh, yeah. in novels. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, we did, what 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 other thing? Uh, just a, a, a Kazen's bullshit. Um, I do love that the lib move to uh, like slyly sneak in Stalinist there anytime they're talking about broadly. And again, I'm not. You know, this is not, yeah, in the '90s I, though. It's like that has to be the most red scary word. Yeah, right. yeah, right, exactly. Right, and right, it's right. like, wait, why? Why are you? describing what Wright's doing there as Stalinist rather than just broadly Marxist, which is what it is, you know? Like, right, so, right, 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 right. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah. It does, it takes this kind of posture of not understanding the world. Yeah. This sort of a willful ignorance masquerading as high intellectualism. The thing that's really fascinating about this, or maybe not, fa- maybe less fascinating and more sort of predictable is that, yeah, he still wrote the intro. He still sees this as worth engaging with. Yeah. And it's not I don't think it's just to scare people about Stalinism and and shit on Richard Wright and shit on Mike Gold and and all the rest of it. I think that either somebody did the men in black memory wipe <laughs> about society <laughs> before he wrote this or in fact he he knows he something inside of him knows that He's wrong. Well, you know, yeah. we, to pull these, or like, a Jewish these... person has to be the person who introduces it, or else mm-hmm. it'll right. be misrepresented. I think, of course, that he does misrepresent it, but right. I wonder if that's right. part of what's going on there too. I'm sure. I'm sure. Be it, th- there's the whole so so that we didn't talk about this, but there is a decent amount of out of Egypt stuff in this novel, just sort of referenced, and I think that. That's sort of almost where Kazan ends in this 
paragraph is in Gold adds that this hundred Jews in a basement. Gold adds that it recalls Egypt slaves around the campfire in the shadow of the pyramids. They drank wine even then. The simplicity of this makes you laugh, but not for long. Gold does not make any concessions to our real heart's need, which apparently is not joy in a wine cellar, but the Messiah who will end poverty forever. Well, you he ha- he can't be. I mean, Kazan has to know that the two things that are being juxtaposed there by, like he's the he's the boob here. Yeah, you know, I, I always, like you want to have a. He's like, well, we could just be having a good time in a wine cellar, which I, is what's important, I, and not the Messiah who's going to end poverty. I totally agree. Like, no, I, I, but I also think that that is actually hot, really reductive about what Gold does say. He's not against hanging out in the wine cellar. Actually, like he, there are aspects of like the Hasidim that he's like really like they have this this like reverence and this kind of like mysticism, which is like compelling in some way. Now he does like yeah. I mean, Benjamin, you mentioned the rabbi that they bring from Europe that just kind of like runs off with the the, the community's money. But like, I mean, there's the, like the like religious ecstasy. And stuff. He's not like mm-hmm. anti that, but he's also like, but that all like all of this is like these are like local moments of finding some kind of meaning or joy under these like oppressive like material structures and conditions around us, right? Like so. Anyway, so I mean, I think I mean, so like, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, Katie. But I also think that like what what Kazan is saying, Gold does in this novel is actually like really simplistic and reductive to what it's actually doing, you know. But you don't drink wine oh, in the yeah. dust. You drink wine in somebody's fancy fucking living room. Yes. On yeah. the Upper East yeah. Side, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's yeah. it's not I think it's literally in a dingy basement where they yeah. drink wine, which, yes. you know, yes. Yeah. Give me too. College. Yeah. I mean yeah. <laughs> like yeah. uh but that's, you know, what Kazan is objecting to is the that that you would do that in the midst of something that that is like, you know, uh world breaking. Yeah. yeah. Happening. Yeah, but, but to, to Katie's point, I, I think, um, yeah, there, there's this weird question of what, why does Kazan feel compelled to even address the novel at all, right? And I mean, I think part of it is that Kazan's a New York intellectual from like New York intellectuals. And so they they felt like they were the communism experts, right? And and so if you're going to refer, if you're going to be an anti-communist, you have to be the anti-communist in the right way, right? And that was the whole sort of project of these kind of like either social democrat or Trotskyist intellectuals in New York City, which was that, you know, we want to control the anti-communist discourse, we can't give it to the right, right? And so mm-hmm. that was sort of their impulse to kind of constantly step in and be sort of better anti-communist even than McCarthy, right? Um, and that was kind of Irving Howe's little shtick, right? Um, and, and many of the other kind of like New York, New York intellectuals. And the other part is this kind of Jewish anxiety, right? You know, that the, the, there is a kind of, I don't want to get into like any kind of Jewish essentialism, but like, you know, there's a sense that like there's, a, there, this, there's an ongoing debate in the Jewish community about the right way to be Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people like Hazen and then people like Norm Poderetz, you know, their whole project was to kind of stage an, <laughs> exactly, it's to kind of stage an intervention, you know, or Mayor Kahane, right? You know, so if you read all these kind of like right wing, and I, I think of Kazan as being right wing, even though he thinks of himself as a socialist. <clears throat> but if you read a lot of these right wing authors, it's really interesting. I actually recently read Mayor Kahane's book, Never, Never Again. And I thought it was going to be about the Holocaust or something, but it's actually the screed against the Jewish left. Like that's all that it's about. It's about, it's a, it's a 308 pages against the Jewish left. And so this is a very common trope uh, among kind of Jewish right-wingers uh, from, you know, again, the kind of commentary to Kahane crowd, uh, which is this kind of sense that 
these are our family members who have gone astray and they must be locked in the basement, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so and I think that's the other impulse. It's, it's again, the kind of New York intellectuals thing about like, you know, we're the better anti-communists around here, but also that this is kind of a family dispute uh, that we're having in public. And, and we, we, we are the ones who are going to be in charge of the discipline. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's the same way that's like Stalin wanted to make sure that like, you know, he shot the dissidents, you know, you know, he's not going to leave this up to like the Nazis to do, you know, it's like, these are mine, you know, these are, these are my, people I, I'm going to go after. And so and so I think in that sense, you know, Kazin felt the need to just kind of butt in there. Um, right. And uh, yeah, right. Well, he made himself known. Yeah. Should we get to the game? Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, I think we've covered pretty much everything that we said we would. Is there anything, any other, anything else uh, before we, before we? I guess, I mean, one thing, I mean, you know, um, just like the literary moment of the 1930s and 40s, um, of which kind of gold was maybe the most emblematic figure, you know, maybe um, Richard Wright might be another one, uh, Merida Lasseur might be another figure that would be really important uh, to think about. And the fact that this was this kind of period of, of you know, really kind of 20, 20 years, you know, from the late 20s to the late 40s, in which, you know, a a radical political party, uh, you know, funded the arts and uh, that that most intellectuals were aligned with the left, uh, whether they were communist party members or not, and that there was a vibrant working class literature that was actually created, funded and constructed out of working class institutions, right? And that this has been totally destroyed by the Cold War. And so, so Mike Gold's novel, on one level, yes, it's, you know, sui generis out of Mike Gold's head, but it comes out of this whole formation that that Mike Gold couldn't have existed without, yeah. right? Uh, or figures like Richard Wright. You know, Richard Wright would not have existed as Richard Wright without the John Reed Clubs or Nelson Algren totally. or a number right. of other writers like that. And and Mike Gold himself was one of the kind of, you know, came out of the, I guess you could say the sort of, you know, the, the daddy of the John Reed Clubs, but also himself sort of came out of the same literary ferment out of which the John Reed Clubs came. And so you wouldn't actually have these working class writers. And so the question that I always ask as someone who teaches literature, someone who teaches working class students, is like how many Mike Golds, Richard Wrights, uh, Nelson Algren's, Carlos Bulasans do we not have today? Uh, because yeah. there is not a communist party and or- organizations like it that are funding working class people yeah. with high literary standards, right? So there's a lot of like bullshit nonprofits. So we just want people to express themselves. And yeah. if they write about roses are red, violets are blue, that's totally cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, like the John Reed clubs had literary standards and like, yeah. you know, the literary journals and like, you know, people like John Dos Passos, you know, would go to these things. Right. And, and so it's like, these were important literary places and, and we don't have that any longer. And MFA schools have taken them over, uh, yeah. you know, and I, I went to an MFA program and if, Ever want to talk about that? You know, uh, the class orientation of my MFA program, it was exactly the opposite. And that's also the other part, sort of part of my yeah. reason for being interesting, interested in Mike Gold is that, you know, Mike Gold is everything that I was taught to hate in my MFA program, yeah. right? So, no, yeah. and, and I, and I, I get another reason why I really did love reading this, much like a reason why I love reading Richard Wright is, I mean, again, obviously, uh, first part of the 20th century, US politics are deeply like fucked up uh, in so many ways. But like, I'm, I'm, among the left, there is this real like, wow, I mean, like just this, this possibility, this sense of possibility that also that felt so fucking foreclosed by the Cold War, by the kind of like liberal and neoliberal hegemony that then developed that we're only like, maybe, and I, I, maybe this is too optimistic, but just kind of starting to like uncover and get back to. And that's, I mean, that's really cool to, to, to read that and just, um, and explore that through. Yeah. Well, through gold, so through much of that like, has been just like, 
utterly overwritten to such yeah. a degree that like just tons of this just is out of print. And yes, so yes. he's not a leftist really, but somebody like John Joseph Matthews or the native stuff that's been refound from the 30s and 40s would not be possible without this either for a quite different reason, which is just yes, that like right. it opens a set of presses that are uh, available. And mm-hmm. right. and actually that's like a it's a funny moment right now for that with respect to MFA programs producing a lot of native writers. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's just like I'm trying constantly to convince my students that there are books in the US between say 1850 and 1950 that like 80% of them are out of print. And if you want to work on like working class writers or um, poor writers or writers of color, like you you people find shit all the time. Like we just a couple weeks ago talked about no no boy and how they they found it in a in a bookshop and that that happens all the time yeah right yeah which is later of course but it's just an example of something like a lot of this stuff just gets uh wiped out or not you know or just not gone through a second publication which is much more passive but still yeah i mean that's um i mean so you know the 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 last sort of you know academic book i did on uh, on anti-imperialism in the 1930s left uh and 1930s culture a lot of what I did, you know, just is literally go through like book reviews in the new masses and daily worker and then find these like obscure books that someone would mention in a book review and find some weird copy in interlibrary loan. The book hasn't been checked out since like 1952. And, you know, and, and some of these books were terrible. <laughs> and some of them were amazing, you know, and, and, but yeah. And so, you know, you actually literally have to kind of rebuild this archive. You know, there's the, the you know, uh, Rolf Trio, you know, makes this point. It's like, it's, it's the, the role of the historian is actually not simply to look through archives. It's the archives of the things that you want don't exist mm-hmm. because no one cared to archive them, you know? And so, you know, so the fact that it's already there in an archive means that somebody already thinks it's history, but if it, you know, and, and, but a lot of the stuff people don't even think is history yet. So mm-hmm. history worth recovering. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That's great to add on and move to the, 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 the lighthearted ending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> stuff Jews don't do includes buying American made cars. <laughs> that's the game it's what jews don't do um no it's not yeah, yeah, well it's good... according to larry david jews don't ride motorcycles and then like my mom got a motorcycle and now i don't know who to listen to anymore right. um so yeah. Yeah. that's um, tough yeah it really is mom versus larry david versus mom on a motorcycle i don't really know which one. yeah no. <laughs> i think There's... i would have to pick mom my mom on I got, a you know, I mean, I have to pick mom on a motorcycle, but it, it was tough. Mm-hmm. I was like, it was like, does does this render Larry David inauthentic? I, I don't know. <laughs> what if he gets on your mom's motorcycle oh, and sort yeah. of that they, would, you know, <laughs> that'd be cool. Oh, this is this is what I can do. Uh, okay, I can I can get Larry David on the back of my mom's motorcycle. Um, that, um, I mean, okay. that yes. would be a life goal, right? <laughs> yes, that, no, I know. I was like, I was feeling sort of aimless and distracted yeah. in my life, and now yeah. I have something to live for yeah. again. Uh, yeah. so. I'm done with Larry David's people. Yeah. yeah, that's what podcasts are for. <laughs> okay, so so game. We have a game, as usual. And the game this week has to do with the fact that so this what we read is this is this uh series of, you know, coming of age story, yes, vignettes, yes, this tale of, of brutal realities of poverty and fleeting joys of family and spirituality and poison dreams of children and adults in America and 1893. And from this, we get a man who found himself devoted to the righteous cause of workers' revolution. And <laughs> we can share in his yet-to-be-fulfilled dream. I think we all do here. I think that's I think that's something we can agree on. And we should do all we can to bring it to fruition, of course. 
But this is a podcast, so we're not going to be doing any of that <laughs> here. What this game is about is that Gold was born in 1893. Okay. He's a 90s kid. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the gay 90s. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but so he didn't get his kicks with scrunchies and mood rings and all the stuff that maybe some of the rest of us did. He is the product of swimming in dead dog soup. That's <laughs> Mike Huckabee's son's aquatic dog sanctuary is another thing we can talk about. I did watch a show called The Gilded Age. It was very accurate of every single person's daily life. Yes, The Gilded Age. It's like, the, it tell, like gilded, right? Like, I, it, it, it's amazing how many people don't understand the, 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 the slight and criticism that's implied in that term. Right. But. I was like, maybe it'll actually think about like Upper class, you know, like distinctions. I was like, you're giving this show too much credit. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> maybe it'll really be. A- you married a dreamer. Yeah. You married a dreamer. <laughs> Anarcho syndicalists are just a bu- are 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 a very dreamy people. Yeah. Yes. Well. Yes, of course. Needless to say, <laughs> um, but so we've got. So again, we've got this. We've got this childhood here, right? We've got that. We've got the dead pets river. Uh, we have watching Italian children roll an iron hoop to an inevitably racist conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have pestering sex workers. Those are the childhood delights. Mm-hmm. And again, from this came a righteous devotion to to something we can believe in. It it seems simple enough to kind of get back to that, but I, it made me wonder why in the hundred year in the hundred intervening years over hundred we still haven't achieved Goldstream. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at look at we live in society. <laughs> look at yeah. it. <laughs> And I think in part it's because kids don't splash around with dead animals anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Soft. Yeah. I, actually, yeah. I think in ho- mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Helicopter parents. In other words, you're talking about helicopter parents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. It's like back, uh, so, yeah. back in my day, my parents just locked me out of the house all day and said, "Go swim with the dead dogs in the East River." Exactly. That's, you know. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I threw me onto a dead dog yeah, if I was not yeah, 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 myself yeah. from the top of the tenement. <laughs> go and, so, go yeah. engage it. Didn't you learn how to drive on a tractor at 14? <laughs> I I I did grow up in the country. That's true, but. It's impressive. It's <laughs> impressive. Um, but no, I think we can we can trace all of this back to childhood pastimes yeah. where we went wrong here. I don't think this has anything to do with the CIA, with NATO, with the liberal <laughs> media apparatus, with the Red Scare. No, it's children's toys. Okay. Cool. All right. So today, I would be honored if you would help me identify kids' pastimes that are keeping us in this mess. So we know what uh, demonic instruments of childhood merriment facilitated progress back then. But what what we're going to do now is I'm going to give you two toys from the 1990s and ask you to identify the one that is most counter-revolutionary. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I just want to- I'm into this, yeah. Yeah. Great. And I just want to say up top, we are not doing Furbies. I have already <laughs> sent them to be re-educated. So that's, so that's, that's a wrap on those. Terrifying little monsters simply awful um okay well here's some other bad stuff here's the for the first uh pair of toys the first is a cabbage patch kits mm-hmm. these floppy floppy dolls yeah. they <clears throat> they grow from the garden confusing children how babies are made and other than that they don't do a whole lot they just have kind of plastic yeah. heads and the their cabbage or two pony surprise Pony Surprise. And what Pony Surprise is, is a stuffed toy where you rip 
the Velcroed underbelly of the pony apart with your bare sticky hands. And then the surprise is how many smaller ponies pop out. The babies. The placenta sold separately. Battery's not included. Oh, that's like revolutionary. Like that midwifery might have to be done on the fly. Uh, Keep the pony. Yeah. When I first said pony, I was thinking, oh, this is like some, you know, bourgeois bullshit. Uh, but and, and no, I, I agree with Megan. That That's the, you know, that that's like real life skills. Cabbage patch dolls are just like, you know, very uh, boring, petty bourgeois nonsense that state that you open a closet you haven't opened in 20 years and suddenly like 50 of them fall out on you. Well, I'll also say, too, like the plot of every bad 90s movie was that someone on the margins, a quirky person on the margins is incorporated in and saves the world. This is sort of, you know, Independence Day, right? You know, the, <laughs> yeah. The weird yeah. quirky scientist is the one played by Jeff Goldblum, who is, of course, the yeah. 90s heartthrob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and this is sort of the Cabbage Patch narrative. We found these quirky outside, these Gen X quirky outsiders, and we'll make them, <laughs> we'll domesticate them, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and bring them inside the house. Yeah. Um, I also want to say, wasn't the '90s the moment where like squirt guns got really powerful? This is yes. what I remember. Yes. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. It's like oh, you I got, got it. like the assault weapon squirt gun. No, 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 know? no. And- like, when I was in third grade, my friends and I at the dirt pile out in the field. Yeah, <laughs> we had all kinds of like very vicious wars with super soakers. Yeah, for sure. Right, super soakers. <laughs> yeah. Because like when I was a kid, cause I think I might be a little older than most of you. Yeah. So I like graduated high school in 1992, yeah. and so I could sort of observe these things yeah. as like coming as a semi-adult. And so remember, you know, when I was a kid. Squirt guns were the you know basically yeah. mom and dad spray bottle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, or these little tiny pistols, you know, and and then people like I see these kids, yeah, like like coming out with flak jackets, yeah, yeah, and like yeah. no, you know, I, in Hummers uh, with these super soakers, and I'm like, I'm in a different yeah. no, the I, end of history is really frightening. When, um, yeah, when so, I when yeah. I was when I was about uh, you, you know fourth grade or so, I had this idea, which thank God I never tried, and I'm surprised I didn't. Which was like, what if I fill this up with gasoline and put like a little nitric nitre at the beginning? Then I've got a flamethrower. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I would have obviously died. So it's very good I well, didn't try. That was, that's like the fundamental. That's like the fundamental human question. Uh, I, I, I a friend of mine was talking about his uncle who is from some tiny town in Alabama, and his fundamental question is always, "Could I?" Put a bomb in that. Yeah, yeah, um, that's what you yeah, do. That's what you do with the country, man. That's what you do. Yeah, can I put a bomb in that? You know, and so I, I feel I understand where that would come from with super soakers. But yes, I, I agree that that the my little pony uh, uh, or um, operating seems, theater yeah. seems inherently seems inherently queer in some way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, asexual reproduction yeah. Uh, is going yeah. on here. Yeah. Uh, or what is that? What are the movement um, mothers by choice? Uh, you know, where you have a friend. Donate some sperm, and you know, then oh, you have yeah. children on your own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, then you have your own pony surprise. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pony surprise. That is it. So yeah. So I feel like the pony surprise is really about kind of non-heteronormative reproduction. Yeah. And it I'm, really I'm puts out it, a so, utopia yeah. of ectogenesis, which I think that we should all yeah. aspire yeah. to. Like I think mm-hmm. that you <laughs> yeah. know that we have not perfected ectogenesis is really a, it's really a shame. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. So. Okay. okay. Well, welcome to the well. Welcome to the fold, comrade pony surprise. Okay. Um, <laughs> and out with the cabbage patch kids. Okay. Here's here's the second one. <sighs> baby alive. First is baby alive. Super snack and Lily. It's a baby doll that eats. And <laughs> what you do, <laughs> what you do is you give her you give her food. Right. You feed her with the food that's in, that's in, included. Uh-huh. And it inc- and there it also includes diapers. And what 
the doll does is it poops into the diaper, poops the food, you feed it into the diaper, and then you take the food from the diaper and then you reconstitute it and refeed it again because you only have so much of this baby alive food. Okay. So you you pull the food out of the okay. diaper and then okay. you, know, you re. Um, so it's efficient. There's a yes man routine that was very similar to this, right? Where they remember the yes men, another '90s uh, phenomenon. Uh, these people who would pull these pranks mm. in front of like yeah, corporate headquarters, and and one of them was uh, two neoliberal. I don't know exactly what their their jobs were supposed to be, but you know, think tank intellectuals who solve world hunger, and it's about making the third world eat their own shit. Um, oh and and of course they they you know the, the the entire room of you know Davos donors were, were enthralled by this idea. You know, okay. Yes, they shall eat their own shit. That's amazing. Okay. So I I could I don't know which came first, the yes men or this doll. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. What's and what oh, are we what boy. are we deciding with this with? All right. Your other choice. The your, this is your other choice, and this is the last. This is the last baby related thing. But it's baby rollerblades. A literal baby that you put rollerblades on and like push okay. across a table or a room. Baby rollerblades. Megan, I mean, you're the anarchist on the show. That last one just kind of sounds, it sounds like anarchy to me. It like, actually is very anarchist to just, I yeah. just, I think rollerblades in general have like a deeply anarchist feel to them for me, like yeah. in the same way that skateboards do, where it's like you're just like a top speed human yeah. and you can throw paint yeah. on shit and then get out of there like so quickly. Huh. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I feel that way about skateboards, but I always felt. <laughs> rollerblades were really count, like part of the counter-revolution counter of the 1990s, but it, it probably has to do with the fact that like the first time I saw rollerblades it was some like douche bro in all black with a carpe diem t-shirt and, and yeah, and that's just like seared it's like you know, image in my brain. This is one of the problems of growing up in California, you know, so everything yeah. is ruined by that guy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I mean, he was seizing the day though. He did. He did. Ro season, rollerblades. He, he rollerblade, but so yes, that's why I was like, rollerblades are like the, the, the carpe diem of the 1990s. You've lived if you've yeah. been on rollerblades, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah. And, <laughs> I just think this the abjection of reconstituting a toy's shit is, Stuck in my brain. Oh, that's fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so, yeah. yeah, like I mean, clearly that's reactionary, but there's something that's so reactionary it kind of goes around the bend yeah. well, I, to yeah. be in like satire, you know. And so, well, I also, I mean, yeah, no, like I, yeah. So I'm. This is a tough one because I, I do, th I do think there are some like anarchist impulses to the the baby on rollerblades, but um, no, like you, you've persuaded me with that. This is an inspiration for the yes men critique of these fucking like uh, Davos assholes. But also, like I feel like this is like subtle, like anti nuclear family propaganda. It's like, oh, you want a baby. Well, this is what babies do. So, you know, maybe you think that. I'd say oh, as someone with a five-year-old, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm convinced the rollerblades are the reactionary toy. Um, okay. Rollerblades are kind of revolutionary. Okay. This baby, that's the, it's such an apocalyptic, dystopian baby. You know, it's like, this is like Mad Max baby. You know, it's like watching fucking Beyond Thunderdome, you know. And yeah, so. I will, I, I will I, bend to the crowd, even though I think the rollerblades have revolutionary potential. Just for like speed, yeah. 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 If I had seen you on the rollerblades, you know, I maybe would have different thoughts about it. Uh, so you know, spray painting anarchy or something. Oh, at this point, wall, I'm but... just a weed mom with a dream. <laughs> Get you some rollerblades and change the world. <laughs> but we've we okay. So we've got so this is our last one. Okay, the very the very last. 
So the first option is uh, a game called Fishing for Floaters. Uh-oh. And um, I'll just kind of uh, I'll just kind of read the ad. Um, I have two ideas and they're uniquely- both terrible. Yeah, yeah. They are bad, but wait to hear the description. These six uniquely shaped poo floaters float happily in your bath. Use the fishing rod and net to hook them and then use them to prank someone else before they use the bath. This toy is intended for kids <laughs> three and up. So t- turds in the toilet uh. or gooey Louie. I watched the commercial for this. I'm just going to read. I'm just going to tell you what the narrator said. Gooey Louie just sneezed. Look what came out of his nose. <laughs> Pull one out. Okay, so you're just, you've got oh, a head, God, a plastic yeah. head, and then goo, goo, and you're pulling out the uh, boogers. But watch out. Pick the wrong one, and he'll flip his lid. Oh, no, his brains fell out. So what happens is that it's a game where you sort of, you pick the uh, gooey out of Louie, but you have to make sure that you don't <laughs> pull his brain. I mean, <laughs> like, huh. I'm almost getting like a Samuel Beckett play vibe from that last one. You know, like there's there's a there's a real like theater of the absurd kind of uh, a possibility. Um, so I think that one's like I that I mean, honestly, it's too revolting to really spend much time on. But it doesn't bother me. But the fishing for floaters does feel like some very uh, antisocial and therefore mm-hmm. like in, in, in like a political sense, therefore kind of counter revolution. Like I'm just we're just going to like throw like we're just going to prank people about getting a bath with fake poop. Like I don't. That's no, I'm not. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that just I just feel like that encourages body shame uh, yeah. on like multiple yeah. levels. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, and and it's yeah, it's not not it's not pro social behavior. <laughs> I think you know the 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 uh, pulling the boogers. You know, there's that old phrase that you know you can't you can pick your nose, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Mm-hmm. This is really about the boundaries of friendship, expanding the boundaries of that friendship, right. and and yeah. just sort of giving people a tutorial yeah. about how one might pick your friend's nose. And of course, you know, one of the crises of of really uh, you know our contemporary era is a sort of crisis of masculinity, in which men can't actually have real friends because yeah, they're, they're afraid yeah. that, that you can't pick your friend's nose is basically like <laughs> why you can't touch other boys. You know, yeah. that's really what that's about. You know. And, yeah, and so this is this is a toy that is like getting men to be comfortable and women to be comfortable with like touching, you know, the face, other people in intimate ways. Yeah, exactly right, and and collapsing that that atomized space yeah. uh, that we understand to be the empty, colonized continent of America. I'm being too practical, but because I have a little kid, I'm like, wh- where do these objects, where do the accessories to these toys like live? You know, yes. in your home, yes. like That's you. A good, yes, and is the mm-hmm. sorry is the booger material like goopy or is it like a plastic? Yeah, it's um springy. Do you remember uh creepy crawlers? The yes. bugs you bake in yes. the oven. Yes. Is that mm. That's gross, though. That that gets um. Wait, dust. there are bugs you baked in the oven? Uh huh. It's it was like it. Yeah, I I I owned this personally. <laughs> why, why would you bake bugs? 
I'm just, is this, is this the kill the bugs over and over and over again to give you the sort of satisfaction, morbid <laughs> satisfaction that like you're getting rid of the bed bugs that have tormented you all your no, life? No, form this... them, like shrinky dinks? Yeah, you, you, you're the god of bugs. You're bringing them into being. Having vital you're heat. You're deciding wow. what colors they're going to yeah. be. You're, you're creating was, life. I, th- wow. This game is actually very useful because we have a lot of Gen Z listeners in our audience. And I just want to say, we're getting to the period where, you know, it's 20 years on, more than 20 years on. And there's going to be a lot of 90s nostalgia. And as someone who lived through the 90s, I just want to emphasize, (laughs) they were a deeply stupid and fucked up time. I'm not saying the world isn't getting worse, but I'm just saying there is nothing to valorize other than maybe like some decent grunge bands from the 1990s. (laughs) This is is why we're sick the way we are. Yes, yes. No, I I basically, you know, spent the 90s sort of politically impoverished and, and wonder what would it be like to come of age with people talking about socialism, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Like I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. And they're like being queer is okay. Yeah, and like, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's just like it's other world that kids are entering into. Yes, yeah. it is uncertain we're all going to die and there's a terrible pandemic. <laughs> but just in terms of like, you know, I was the only socialist I knew, you know, until I like got to grad school pretty yeah. much. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, YouTube yeah. Macarena 96 DMC <clears throat> convention. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Awful. So the answer is the brain baby. Yeah. The answer, yeah. The answer is the brain baby. Yeah, brain baby, hands down. Yeah. Yeah. Or fingers up or whatever. Yeah. So. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So now we know. And this was a beautiful experience of just we all got on the same page. We got a we got a close reading of the phrase, uh, you can you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Yeah. Um, which my therapist thinks that expression refuses to to alter his impression is that he thinks the expression is you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. Oh. <laughs> and that's the therapist's universal line. So well, basically, it's, it's a statement about prohibition. It's fundamentally a statement about yeah. various boundary prohibitions, yeah, yeah. things, a, a line you cannot cross. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a kind of intimacy that is withdrawn from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, the, yes. The, yeah, so... It's the elusive, it's the floater that you cannot fish for. It always, <laughs> it drifts, drifts to the horizon. Well, th- thank you for so definitively... You all came to, to conclusions and that I that I agree with entirely. So yeah. um, 100% A plus, you. you're all winners. <laughs> That's how it goes. Well, so thank you, Benjamin, so much. This has just been like a great experience having you on. Yeah, this is absolutely delightful. Um, so, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can, we can all chat again. At some point, uh, this is really great. And I'm so happy that we're doing Michael's work here. So, so uh, this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Benjamin on Twitter at BL underscore Balthasar. You can find me on Twitter at Teslasaurus. Katie is at Katie Crywo. Tristan is at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. Uh, spelled r-e-a-d and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com but only if you want to find another brilliant line from jews without money so we can just so we can put them on buttons and distribute yeah. them in the street what would yeah. mike gold do yeah uh our intro music is left bronstein by the redskins and used with their permission our logo was created by jane bonsack of jb design and content please rate and review and subscribe Next week, we have Naked Lunch. Um, You're welcome, and I'm sorry. And we have Wuthering Heights on deck after that. So thanks, comrades. Bye.